First Peter 5, beginning in verse 8. Peter says, Be sober and be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that which is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And Father, we ask for just the help of your Holy Spirit, even in this hour as we continue to just worship you, Lord. We've sang and prayed, and and we want to continue now to worship by just submitting our heart and our attention and our focus to what you would say to us through the authority of your word. Lord, we ask that you'd prepare us accordingly, and we pray for just that ministry of your spirit to teach us and to speak directly and powerfully into each one of our hearts and lives exactly what it is that you need us to hear. So, Lord, bless your word, we ask, and we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Don't you ever feel like on occasion that you are sort of engaged in the midst of a battle and maybe as you sense this sort of tumultuous experience going on in your life, maybe like me sometimes, it doesn't even seem that you can really even put your finger on exactly why. It just seems like there's a sense of antagonism, whether it's in you internally or it just seems like that there's a a situation of conflict and, and you seem and sense that you are engaged in the midst of a battle and yet you can't really put your finger on exactly the reason why that is. Well, I would venture to say that a lot of the times that's because often we are experiencing unseen spiritual battles that the Bible speaks to us about. And our passage this morning, as we look at it together, addresses that reality, and it offers us some helpful counsel in regards to such things. You know, a key part of the Christian life really is learning how to overcome spiritual battles, understanding that we are able to do that and exactly how we're to approach that. And these verses speak to us about things about being aware and being sensitive and discerning to the reality that we have an enemy of our soul that is going to bring antagonism and conflict and attacks against us. It speaks to us about some perspectives we need to maintain and all of these things, of course, to help us stay guarded against the assaults and the attacks of the devil. And the passage as well, we'll see in verse 10, really emphasizes to us also the importance of being dependent upon the grace of God to help us as we deal with the struggles and suffering and things that we go through in this life. Remember that one of the major themes we've seen as we've journeyed all the way through the book of First Peter now, one of the predominant themes in First Peter is giving counsel and instruction to suffering Christians. 
He's writing to a group of believers scattered through Asia Minor who were going through difficult times. And he gives to them a lot of instruction in this letter regarding how to retain a proper perspective in the midst of suffering. He talks to them about how to navigate difficulties and how to live properly in hard times. And now as Peter comes to the close of his letter, it's almost as if he gives to us here an indication of where some of that suffering is actually coming from. Now, I don't think that we should always uh, relegate all forms of suffering to the devil. And, and we're always, look, you know, the devil did this and the devil did that. I mean, the bottom line is we live in a fallen world. We've talked about many times as we've gone through this, that suffering is just a reality and a part of experiences that we all go through in this life in measure. In fact, the Bible even tells us, we see in First Peter, where he said that sometimes we suffer according to the will of God, that sometimes it's actually a part of God's will for our lives that we experience suffering in some measure and and there's a purpose and something productive that can come out of it but i think in closing here peter wants to give a clear indication that some of the suffering in which we do experience in this life it has its origin in someone who the bible calls is the devil often satan and the one who is our adversary and our enemy who hates us and wants to bring difficulty into midst of our experience look with me in verse 8 peter begins to give this warning now he says be sober be vigilant because your adversary the devil he says walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour So the first thing that Peter does here is give a warning to believers that we are all, every one of us, vulnerable to the attacks of the devil against our lives. And I would go so far as to say this. I think it's interesting he discusses this and the Holy Spirit puts this on Peter's heart in the midst of a letter that is dealing a lot with suffering. I would add to that, I think we become many times more vulnerable to the attacks of the devil in the times when we are suffering. Again, the, the, the devil's no gentleman. It's not that he's going to look at your life when you're going through a hardship or a, a difficult season and say, oh, well, I mean, I mean, Tony's really going through a hard time. We ought to give the guy a break for a little bit. That's not how the devil works. The devil, when you're down, is going to come by and kick you in the gut one more time to make it all the more difficult. And I would say this, in the moments and the seasons when we are suffering, we almost become more vulnerable to the temptations and the attacks and the assaults of the devil as he tries to prey upon our weakness in his cruelty and in his fierceness. But we are all susceptible, whether in a time of suffering or everyday experience, we're all vulnerable to the attacks of the devil. Peter speaks of him here in verse 8 and tells us some things about him. But the first thing I would say is this in regards to him mentioning the devil is notice that the Bible speaks of a personal and a literal devil that exists. Listen, this morning, be not deceived. The devil is not some imaginatory figure that's on you know the little cartoon character on the back of tuna cans or we see little cartoons this goofy guy with a little pitchfork and a long black pointy beard and a red cape the devil is not some figment of imagination he's not some mythical cartoon character in fact the devil is never more successful than when he can dupe humanity to, in a sense, deny his existence or ignore the things that he's doing. 
when people deny the existence of a literal devil, in a sense, the devil sits back and has a heyday because that just gives him a greater opportunity to more successfully launch his assaults and his attacks against humanity because people don't recognize that it's he that's the one that's actually behind it and they don't respond to it then accordingly they just like oh well it was just just bad fate or, or this or that and, and people don't properly respond because they fail to realize the bible teaches there is a personal and a literal devil just like there is a literal god that is in existence and is operating in our midst so who is the devil well, that's important. The Bible teaches us clearly who he is and who he is not. He's not God's equal. Okay, don't get the idea that the devil is the rival sort of to God and, and his arch enemy and, and he's equal to God. No, the Bible teaches that the devil himself was actually originally created by God. God is creator. He's in a category all by himself. He, he's not equal to God. Don't ever get that impression. The Bible teaches that the devil is one of God's created angels who once possessed a very high-ranking position among the heavenly realm, had great authority, yet became filled with pride, rebelled against God, and as a result of that was cast out of that heavenly position that he once had and was cast and fell from that position. In fact, if you want to write in your notes or in your Bible, Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28, these are two chapters that describe in detail the fall of Satan, the fall of the devil from his high-ranking position as a once a created angel of God. And in that fall, the scriptures also teach that the devil led away one-third of the angelic realm with him in his rebellion against God, which has now established what we would call the kingdom of darkness or demonic spirits, demonic spirits or evil spirits, which in a sense have their supreme ruler as the devil himself. When you look at the word devil in the original language that, that Peter was writing in and that day using, it literally is a term that means one who slanders, one accuses or one who defames. Uh, it's the Greek word diabolo where we get our English word diabolical when we talk about something that's devilish or satanic. But it's a great word to use for the devil, one who slanders, accuses, or defames because that's exactly how he operates. It's exactly what he does. He seeks to disrupt relationship between God and humanity. And the way that he often does that is by doing those two things. He slanders and defames who God is in the minds of men so that men won't come to God so that men will rebel against God so that men will stay away from God so he slanders and defames who God really is in the minds of men and then in turn he slanders man before God by accusing us continuously the Bible says in Revelation 12:10 that he's the accuser of the brethren who night and day is accusing us before God and pointing out our sin and blaming and accusing us and slandering us for our shortcomings as we fail the Lord. And notice as well in the text with me in verse 8, it says here in verse 8 that the devil is also, and don't miss this, it says your adversary. Your translation may say your enemy. Same idea. An enemy or an adversary is someone who is hostile toward you. An adversary is someone who is seeking to oppose or to injure you, someone who wants to overthrow you. It's a nice way of basically saying the devil hates your guts and he desires to do nothing more than to rob, 
kill, and destroy your life. And you are a naive human being, I tell you, if you fail to recognize the biblical reality that there is a literal devil that does exist who desires in his hatred for your life like every other human being on this planet to rob everything good from your life to destroy any wonderful and good thing God has intended for your life and to kill all the plans and purposes that God has for your life. The Bible tells us he is your adversary. See, not only has he rebelled against God, he wants to sabotage God's plan. And what is God's plan foremost? To have fellowship with you and I among humanity. The heart of God, the plan of God, is to work among his creation, those who he's created, that we might have fellowship with him and experience his glorious plans and purposes for our lives. And the devil has a jealousy of and a hatred for human beings i think most likely because we were created in the image of god angels weren't created in the image of god human beings were created in the image of god and we see from his very first appearance you go back to the book of genesis in the garden of eden you only got to get three chapters into the bible and the first time the devil shows up his first appearance in the garden of eden with adam and eve you can see these realities coming to pass you can see his hatred for humanity you can see already that he is operating. It says there he shows up in the form of a serpent and he very craftily, deceitfully, immediately does what? He begins to sabotage the relationship that existed between God and mankind. And right away he begins with his first words. Again, I encourage you, familiarize yourself with Genesis chapter 3 because it's the first time you hear the devil speak in the Bible. The best way to overcome your enemy in military strategy is if you know the way that your enemy works. And as soon as the devil begins to speak, the first words that roll off of his lips as he begins to speak in the Bible, what's he doing? He's slandering God to Adam and Eve. He's slandering God by defaming God's character and he's trying to cause them to think that somehow God is not good, that God's just trying to rip them off and if they follow God, they're going to miss all the good and wonderful things they could and, and that God doesn't really have good intentions for you and that's why he's trying to hold these things back from you and he's encouraging, listen, you need to be liberated. Don't, don't live submitted to God. That's constricted. You need to be free. Don't follow God's ideas and rules and prohibition. You, he's just trying to hold back and, and he's questioning, in a sense, and defaming the nature of the goodness of God to humanity. And then also, what does he do? He begins to question the word of God. He says, you won't surely die. In other words, what God said, you, I mean, you can't take that literally. I mean, do you think God would really let you die? Do you think he really meant that when he said that and he's doing what? Questioning the word of God. Of God. Same playbook. The devil does the same thing to this day. In the minds of human beings, he slanders who God is. He causes people to have wrong thoughts about God through voices they hear or things people are saying in the world or thoughts in their minds. And he questions who God is. And then he also does that very same thing. He is always causing people to question the word of God. To say, hey, you can't believe that, you can't trust it, and, and he works in the exact same way. And in the garden, what does he do? He craftily, with deception, he baits the hook well, he lures in the first two created beings on this planet in his temptation, he entices them to rebel against God. 
indicating there'll be no real consequences. There won't really be consequences. And he causes the fall of humanity as mankind sins against God and then sin and death enter the world and mankind forfeits their God-given role and authority on the earth. They forfeit that over to Satan in a sense by submitting themselves to Satan's ideas. They forfeit the authority God gave to them and grant the devil power, if you would, to spiritually enslave human beings until they are liberated and freed through the salvation of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that. It tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, the devil is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So those who are living in disobedience outside of following God, the Bible says there is an unseen spiritual current and the prince of the power of the air, the devil, is the one who is the spirit at work in the lives of those who are what? Not following the spirit of God. And he says that he is the prince of the power. They are dominating in an unseen way over the lives of people who are not following the spirit of God, living in disobedience. First John 5 says it this way. It says the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. He's an unseen dictator, an unseen tyrannical being who is directing the current of destroying lives. And it's only through the salvation that is given by Jesus Christ that a person can be liberated and set free to serve God. Jesus delivers those who put their trust in him from the tyrannical dictatorship of satanic control over their lives and liberates people to serve God the way that we were originally intended to. And in light of that, I would say this this morning. The devil doesn't want that to happen. He doesn't want that to happen. So because of that, for those who are not yet saved, not yet following Jesus Christ, he is going to seek to oppose and resist in every way that he can such a person from surrendering their life to Jesus Christ because he wants to keep them in his camp. He doesn't want to see them be liberated. He's in resistance and rebellion to God. He, he hates humanity. He's jealous of what exists between God and humanity. So the devil wants to keep unsaved people, those not following Christ, ensnared in the life condition that they're in so that he can, as 1 Peter 5 says, slowly devour their lives. And he'll do it in the most subtle ways. And I say that this morning in the love of God and the truth of his word to tell you that today, if you're not saved and you're following Jesus Christ, it's important for you to recognize that part of the reason why you're not saved yet and why you're not following Jesus Christ yet is because the devil is still successfully working in your life in the ways that he is craftily with you, keeping you from coming to Christ, convincing you that you shouldn't come to Christ. And, and keeping you preoccupied and distracted saying, well, just it's, it, whatever. And he just he puts the roadblocks up so that you don't come to Jesus Christ. He puts detours to get you off this way for a little while. And then he puts roadblocks up in your mind and this and that. Listen, you need to realize the devil is at work keeping people from coming to Christ. He doesn't want people to come to Christ. And once people do... And if a person does then surrender to Christ and when a person gets saved and born again, he's then lost the battle for their soul. And once he's lost the battle for someone's spirit and soul, once we are a Christian, then he works as our adversary in a different way. He then just tries to deter our spiritual life. 
He then tries to, as much as possible, discourage us and distract us or to get us to defile ourselves with sin because his agenda against the Christian is to make you the most carnal, worldly, empty, miserable, saved person who in a sense has a saved soul and yet just a wasted life. So he'll work diligently as an adversary against the child of God to keep you from becoming an effective soldier in the Lord's army. And Peter knew that firsthand. That's why he's the one probably writing these very things. If you remember Peter, who was a follower of Jesus, at one point was forewarned by Jesus when Jesus said to him, Peter, I want to let you know Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat. In other words, Jesus was saying to Peter, uh, Peter, I want you to know that Satan is looking to shake your life and to strip you down bare and to do whatever he can to pull your life apart. And unfortunately, we know the story from the Gospels. Peter didn't respond to Jesus' warning. He didn't heed that. And because he didn't respond to Jesus' warning, he ended up in personal failure and denied the Lord. And Peter, above anybody, knew what it was like to get caught in the grasp of the roaring lion. And as a result of that, to be hurt and wounded and have the regret and the pain and the sorrow of getting caught in the grasp of the roaring lion and denying the Lord in his own life spiritually. So what's he doing now in verse 8 here? Peter, as someone who once was caught in the grasp of the roaring lion, he's trying to sound the alarm to fellow Christians saying, listen, I want to protect you from experiencing what I experienced. I like how he portrays the devil here in verse 8. He calls him the devil. He says he walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, in the minds of the ancient cultures, they heard that. That put a real clear image in their mind because among the Roman Colosseums, we know historically for heightened sporting entertainment, they would at times in a Colosseum let someone run loose and then they would unleash hungry lions in the midst of that arena and watch a person run as hard as they could and fight off and resist while a lion would literally devour them and rip their body to shreds as a form of sporting entertainment for those who were watching. So this, this was a very clear visual picture for them. For you and I today, we don't have that. We kind of have things like the Nature Channel. You know, we have the Nature Channel and you watch the little poor hyena, you know, just get grabbed. The same idea there. But the picture is intended to convey something to us. We learn a few things about the devil from this portrayal of him as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Three things specifically I could say we could draw from that. First of all, like a lion, the devil is ferocious and he's dangerous. He's not someone to be trifled with. The devil is an extremely powerful spiritual being and he is utterly cruel. He is merciless in the ways in which he operates. He has no care or concern for people. You read the book of Job and when God granted a measure of permission to the devil to operate against Job's life, do you remember what the devil does? He wreaks havoc in Job's life. Utter cruelty. Destroys his family. Destroys his health. Tears apart his you know, business and finance. And just literally just wreaks havoc and utter destruction upon his life. So the devil should never be underestimated or overlooked in how much harm and devastation he can bring into a life. We need to realize that. 
Like a lion, he is ferocious and a dangerous, dangerous adversary. Secondly, like a roaring lion, he's also aggressive and he is always active. You notice that Peter says here he's like a roaring lion that is seeking whom he may devour. The devil is constantly looking for victims. Take note of that word. He's seeking people to devour. Like a lion goes around seeking a victim. And it's out hunting, looking for prey. The devil is always seeking to attack into a snare. He's actively surveying people's lives. And, and again, is the devil omniscient like God? Does he know everything about us like God does? No, he doesn't have the attributes of God. But what the devil does do is he sets up wise surveillance on people's lives. And like a military strategist, he's always seeking his next victim. And he's always plotting and looking for setting up his next sabotage. So he's observant. He pays attention to what you're doing in your life. And he sees what you flirt with on occasion where you just kind of get close to crossing the edge. And he sees those areas of weakness where we lower our guard. And in a sense, he's always seeking for the opportunity because he's an opportunist. In fact, when you read of the temptation of Jesus by the devil himself in the Gospels, it tells us that after Jesus overcame the devil's temptation, it says that he then departed from Jesus, and it says this, until an opportune time. Now, I find that very interesting. He de- after trying to tempt Jesus, when Jesus overcame him, it says he departed from the Lord until an opportune time. That tells us something. The devil's an opportunist. He, he, he looks for an opportune time. And it's important to be discerning and realize the devil is always looking for the right opportunity to capitalize. He pays attention and he looks for the opportunities when he can capitalize. He is always actively seeking his next victim and those he can launch a sabotage against. And thirdly as well, like a roaring lion, it also reminds us the devil's intention is to utterly destroy lives. It says seeking whom he may devour. It doesn't say seeking whom he might intimidate. It doesn't say he's a roaring lion. He's just a roar. I just want to scare you. Oh, it just it, like in the zoo where a lion roars and all. Oh, you know, everybody gets all scared. But there's a fence between you, and he can't do nothing. No, the devil doesn't want to just intimidate people and scare people. It says the devil is seeking whom he may devour. That word devour means utterly destroy. It means annihilate, consume. Chew up and spit out the bones, overwhelm. He's not looking just to hassle people. He wants to totally destroy people's lives. And he has numerous hunting tactics in which he does that. Certainly, I think one of the greatest tactics of the devil in his hunting and his trying to capitalize on his prey is really lying and deception. In fact, Jesus, when he spoke of the devil, said that he's the father of lies, and when he lies, he speaks his native language. So understand, one of his greatest hunting tactics is to misguide people. It is to get people to believe lies and to believe the wrong things. Again, he appears as a serpent in the Bible. A serpent is a picture of what? Something that's sneaky. It, it, it gets itself in position and then it strikes its prey. And it injects its venom and then watches its victim just slowly die. And this is the way the devil works. And Peter identifying this threat, that's why he instructs us what to do here. He says, as a result of that, verse 8, we have to be sober and be vigilant. Again, when somebody is sober, they, they are having good judgment. When you're drunk, you don't make good judgments. When you're drunk, you're not alert to what's going on around you, and you make foolish decisions and bad choices. The idea is we need to be self-controlled, thinking clearly, and paying attention 
to what's going on in regards to the fact of the devil's existence. We have to be vigilant, he says, that is to watch out, to be carefully paying attention to what's going on to surround. The picture here of being sober and vigilant is like a soldier on a battlefield where there's active conflict. If you're in active military conflict, you can't get drowsy and careless and let your guard down. You have to stay alert. You have to pay attention. You need to be aware of your surroundings and your safety is dependent upon that so that you're not ambushed or you're not overcome. And the more that you are alert and prepared for an assault, you have a greater safeguard when the assault comes because it will eventually. I think another way of illustrating that, again, if you can picture like a boxing match. Uh, when you enter into a boxing rat uh, match, it'd be very wise to accept the reality that your opponent on the other side of the ring intends on striking you. That guy who's your opponent, the fact that he's your opponent means he intends on trying to strike you and not just that, to hurt you and to hopefully knock you out. So because of that, what's important? Step number one, not how do you punch somebody. Step number one is keep your guard up. Because if you let your guard down, you're going to get knocked out. Spiritually, we have to keep our guard up. Because we have an adversary, an enemy, who wants to do the same thing. And if we don't keep our guard up, he's going to capitalize, and sadly, sometimes with a knockout blow against our lives. And too often we see this happen to fellow brothers and sisters, and it's a tragedy. It's a shame. It's so sad when the devil does this. And Peter had let his guard down once before, and we need to be spiritually alert, he says, and even recognize when the attacks are coming. Pay attention. When you discern it's happening, you then are able to properly respond. So Peter says in light of this, verse 9, he says, we have to resist him being steadfast in the faith. So we're to be alert, we're to pay attention, but the assaults are still going to come. So Peter says, we have to learn how to resist him. The idea is to hold our ground spiritually, to not give up territory to defend your ground, to hold your place. Ephesians 6 says this, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness. Therefore, he says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to Stand. Notice in that passage, Ephesians 6, as it talks about spiritual armor and putting on the armor of God to resist the devil, there's a constant reference to something, and that's this. Stand. Withstand. Stand. Withstand. The idea there is simply this. In spiritual warfare, the Bible does not teach that we are to take an offensive position against the devil as our adversary. That is naive, that is super spiritual, and that is radically dangerous. I get very concerned when I hear Christians say, you know, we're just going to storm the gates of hell, and we're going to command the devil what to do. And listen, uh, I'm going to start running the other direction uh, and hide behind Jesus. And uh, if you want to be that dumb, that's how people get beat up and get jumped. And, and, and it happens spiritually. The Bible teaches that we are not to instigate the devil that we are to take a position of self-defense against the devil that we are to stand 
that we are to stand behind our big brother, the Lord Jesus, who guards us and protects us. And the best way to deal with the devil, who, let's put it this way, he's kind of like a chronic spiritual bully who wants to go around intimidating people and beating up on people. And the best way to deal with a bully is not to instigate conflict with a bully. The best way to deal with a bully is to become equipped and prepared how to resist his tactics so that when he tries to come against you, you are at least confident and capable enough to stand up against him in self-defense and to resist his tactic of trying to intimidate or overcome. And we are told with the devil that we are to resist him. That is to take up a posture of spiritual self-defense to hold our ground. James 4, 7 says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. To resist, the Bible says. And, and how do we do that in a, in a practical sense? Well, Peter says, resist him, verse 9, steadfast in the faith. Resist him in this way, by being steadfast in the faith. The word steadfast means unwavering commitment, dedication, to be loyal and to be devoted. And notice it does not say be steadfast in faith. In other words, the Bible is not saying to have a lot of faith. And if you just have a lot of faith, you can overcome the devil. What the Bible is saying here is that we need to be remaining steadfast in the things of the faith. Steadfast in the faith. That is staying consistently committed to an unwavering devotion to the things of our faith as a Christian. It tells us in Colossians 2, 6, and 7, As you therefore receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. So how do we do that practically? How does that unfold in our lives? Well, I think in a few ways that help us resist the devil by being steadfast in the things of our faith. First of all, by simply just being loyal and devoted with unwavering commitment to the Lord Jesus in your life. Because he's the whole reason for our faith. He's the captain of our faith. He's the purpose of our faith. So as you stay dedicated to his lordship, you keep yourself steadfast in the things of the faith. Hebrews 2 says it this way, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnared us and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It's important as well that we maintain an unwavering commitment to the word of God. Again, as we look at Jesus overcoming the temptations of the devil in the Gospels, what does Jesus do when the devil tempts him three times? He quotes the word of God. That's profound. In Jesus' humanity, while he was on this earth living as a man, he was still God. So when the devil came against him, he could have exerted his divine authority and he could have just crushed the devil. He could have you know, flicked him across the universe if he wanted to. But what did Jesus do in his humanity? He three times quotes the word of God, in essence, reminding the devil, I, in submission to the word of God, will have the authority to overcome your temptations. Now that gives me great hope because I'm not Jesus. I don't have the authority that God has, but I have the authority of God's word. And that tells me that in my humanity, I don't have to be God to overcome the devil. I, like Jesus, as I submit to the authority of the word of God, in a sense, have a way to resist his temptations and his attacks as well. Ephesians 6 says God's word is the sword of the spirit that can help us defend against spiritual attacks of the devil. 
I like to think of it this way. When the lion roars with his lies and his deceptions and, and all, when the lion roars, do you know what you do? You take the sword of the Spirit and you just shove the thing right down his throat. You just shove the Word of God. Let him roar. Let the lies come. Listen, when somebody comes in and sits before me and they're struggling with lies and they need... Count, listen, you know what I do? I just shove the sword of the Spirit right down the devil's throat because I know that's the best thing to safeguard a person against the lies and the deceptions of the devil. So the Word of God is a great asset to help us stay steadfast in the faith. So submitting to Jesus' authority and lordship, that helps us being in consistent exposure to the Word of God. And of course, things as well, like staying devoted to prayer. That keeps us steadfast in the faith. Remember when Jesus, the night of his betrayal, was with his disciples, he told them what? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. What was he saying? In relation to the degree that you stay in fellowship with God in prayer, you'll be able to resist temptation when it comes. Watch and pray less so you don't enter into temptation. Same is true for us. To the degree we stay in fellowship with God through prayer, we safeguard ourselves to overcome temptation and sin in our lives when the devil tries to assault and attack us. And I'll tell you one other area we often overlook that keeps us steadfast in the faith and safeguarded against the devil. And that is very candidly this. It is staying in connection to the body of Christ. Because there is a safeguard and a protection among God's people from the devil and his attacks. We are not called to live like isolated sheep. We're called to be a flock. And the individual sheep in the flock are much safer when they're together with a flock. You see those little nature channels. What happens? Mr. Lamb wanders off over here. And that's... And that thing gets torn to shreds. Because it's vulnerable. And I say that this morning because if... You are here this morning, praise God for that. But if you are a Christian who is prone to keep disconnecting from the flock and wandering around and, and you know inconsistent in fellowship, I tell you this, you are jeopardizing your spiritual welfare. You, you keep yourself safeguarded by being consistently a part of God's people. Peter says, verse 9 as well, that we should also be knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by our brotherhood in the world. So he reminds the believers their suffering was not an isolated case. He says to the Christians here, look, God's not unfairly letting you be singled out as the only one enduring struggles. And isn't it true that the devil would gladly let God's people believe that when they're going through difficulties? He would gladly like to lie to people in the midst of their suffering and struggle to make them feel like theirs is an isolated case. They're the only one dealing with this. You're the only one suffering with that. God's let you be singled out. Somehow he's not paying attention to you. And the truth, the Bible says, is Christians all over the world were going through similar forms of suffering in Peter's day, whether it was general suffering or suffering associated with being a Christian. And it is indeed helpful to realize and remember for all of us that when we suffer and struggle, that there are other believers enduring the same challenges that we are all over the world. All over this planet, we're not the only one enduring hardship and suffering and difficulty. People all over the world are being mistreated for their faith. People all over the world are being persecuted 
because they're trying to follow Jesus Christ. People all over the world are dealing with health issues and marriage problems and financial struggles. People all over this planet are dealing with the death of a loved one and disappointments and failures and how to recover from their failure and and loneliness. There are lonely people all over the world. There are people all over the world that have been betrayed and hurt and wounded and mistreated and and dealing with disappointment. And, And somehow... It seems that if we allow ourselves to feel and think that we are the only ones suffering, do you ever notice how when you begin to give in to that, it can lead to unhealthy attitudes? If you buy into that wrong idea that you're the only one going through what you're going through and suffering the way you are, it can really begin to cause your mind to begin to believe wrong things. It can lead to unhealthy things like you know, self-pity and getting introspective and woe is me, I'm the only one dealing with this and it's just so, and, and, and it, just, it, it just fosters self-pity. It fosters things in us like getting embittered and angry. This is unfair, why do I, nobody else is, and, and we can get angry at God and, and angry at our situation. It makes us feel hopeless. Sometimes when we believe that, we just get despairing and depressed and we want to just give up because we think we're the only one dealing with such a hard thing, and it just fuels the fire of our suffering. But if we realize, as the Bible's telling us here, if we realize that we are fighting the same battles that every comrade in Christ all around this planet is dealing with, I don't know about you, but there's something about that is inspirational to say, you know what, I'm going to stand strong. I'm going to hold the battle line in my territory. And I'm going to keep marching forward because I'm not the only one struggling. And it just gives a real incentive to the exact opposite to encourage us. So the devil's always going to be trying to cause intensified suffering and devastation, whether like cruel form of tragedy in the life of Job, or whether like David trying to ensnare us in spiritual failure and bring consequences of sin But look what verse 10 says. It says, But may the God of all grace, who's called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And to him, Peter says, be the glory and dominion forever and ever. So amidst our suffering, notice God wants to help us. He wants to support us and to sustain us with his gracious assistance. I love, verse 10 here, the title the Bible gives to God. The Bible gives many titles to God. But I love the title we get here in verse 10. It calls him the God of all grace. To me, that's one of the best titles you could give God. The God of all grace. What is grace? It is that unmerited, undeserved kindness It speaks of God's favor, of God's blessing. And it says here, he is the God of all grace. I have that underlined, the God of all grace. To me, that says two things. First of all, God will and God can supply whatever kind of grace you need. And as you go through life, you ever notice as you deal with different things, uh, it requires various different kinds of grace to navigate through things. Maybe you're going through something and you need the the spiritual grace of God to help you with a spiritual issue. Sometimes we need grace from God to help deal with our emotions and what we're going through. If you're suffering physically or you're sick, sometimes if you're just weary, Lord, I I need your grace 
to deal with this affliction or I just need your grace physically, Lord. I just am hurting or I'm suffering. And, and we need God's grace in its various different forms, whether it's a health issue or a spiritual struggle or, Lord, I need your grace to deal with this marriage problem. Lord, I need your grace to be able to work through this hardship, this unexpected tragedy. I never expected this to happen, God. And Lord, I need your grace. Whatever we're facing, the wonderful thing is that God has the exact kind of grace that you need for whatever it is you're personally going through. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 12 that when Paul was dealing with one of his personal struggles, that he pleaded with the Lord for help and that Jesus said to him, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Hey, this morning, whatever you're going through, maybe you're facing something the Lord has sufficient grace for whatever it is you're going through. He has the kind of grace that you need in that situation and in that specific circumstance for whatever you may deal with in your life. And not only does he have the right kind of grace, but secondly, he's the God of all grace who will also supply, listen, however much grace that we need because he's the God of all grace. However much grace we need, depending upon exactly the extent of what you're facing, you may need various measures and amounts of God's grace. Sometimes you go through some and say, man, it's going to take a lot of grace, Lord, to deal with this person. Lord, it's going to take a lot of grace to be able to face this change or to go through this situation. And whatever the measure and amount of grace you need, he's the God of all. All grace. James says he gives more grace. Sometimes you go to the Lord, he gives you his grace, and the next day you get up and you say, Lord, uh, I need some more grace again. <laughs> He's the God of all grace. However much grace you need, he'll grant it to you. He has constant reservoirs of his grace to pour into your life. And Peter speaks of some of the benefits of his grace. He says, after we have suffered for a while, notice verse 10, suffering doesn't last forever. It's for a season. God may allow us to suffer for a little while. He knows what we can handle. But eventually, once he sees what we're able to handle, it says after you suffer a while, he will then perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Those are just four words describing sort of the benefits of experiencing God's grace. That word perfect is a beautiful word. When you look at it, it literally is a term that was used to put things back together. It's translated in other places in the Bible as mending nets. Mending nets. In other words, what's that saying? It tells us that God is in the business of mending people's lives. That when people deal with the storms of this life and the sails are all torn and tattered and the ship has been shipwrecked and it's falling apart, God is in the business of helping people put things back together. He's in the business of perfecting and completing and putting back together the pieces when everything falls apart. Hey, are things falling apart in your life? God can put the pieces back together. God can give you the grace to put the pieces back together. God wants to mend your life. It speaks of the power of God's grace for restoration. For restoration. He mends the nets. He establishes us. It says as well, and the idea of establish is to just give us a greater depth of our character. He says as well, God's grace will strengthen you. So when you're weak and weary, the grace of God enables us to have the strength to carry on. And it says His grace also will settle you. The idea is to make things settle back down. 
God can ultimately cause things that just become secure again. He takes away all the instability and the waves and he can just settle things back down when his grace is at work. And man, if it were not enough that he supplies his grace in this life, notice in verse 10, Peter says as well that this same God of all grace is the one who's called us to his eternal glory. So it's great that God would supply his grace for this life, but the most wonderful demonstration of God's grace is it's God's grace that is offered to you and I the hope of eternal life. That's why Peter said in verse 12, as we saw when we were reading through kind of those greetings there, that this is the grace of God in which you stand. See, our eternal destiny is not based on our work and our achievement and how good we can do. And if we keep performing, then maybe we'll get into eternity. No, the Bible says you stand in the grace of God. That we are saved by grace and through faith. And the most wonderful demonstration of God's grace is that his grace has saved us and it gives us the eternal hope that there's something beyond the grave for us. And I don't know about you, but when I reflect on the eternal reality of what is ahead of me as a Christian, that helps me navigate things. When I realize not only does God help me and give me the grace to go through things in this life, but that same God of grace who helps me in this life is the same God who has also assured me by the grace of God alone and the finished work of Jesus Christ that there's something for me in eternal life. That's why the Bible says our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I think that's why Peter breaks into praise in verse 11 and says, to him be the glory and dominion forever. It just, it just caused him to want to worship the Lord. And this morning I would say this, as Christians, be aware of the devil. Be aware of the devil. Don't overlook the reality of what the Bible teaches. And can I encourage you, if you're suffering, that God has the grace for whatever it is that you're going through. As we sing a final song in worship, in response to God's word, I would encourage you, if you're struggling or suffering this morning, whatever you're facing, as you're worshiping, just lift your heart to the Lord and say, Lord, I need your grace for this. I need your grace to help with this. And then look to the Lord and receive from him that grace that he offers. And I would finally say this as well. If you're this morning and you're not following Jesus yet, you haven't chosen to surrender your life to him. Can I caution you, beware, because you are still spiritually in the clutches of the devil. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. And that is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. A dangerous place to be. And I would encourage you as we sing this final song that you call upon the name of Jesus and say, Lord, before the devil slowly devours my life. Save me. Because Jesus can rush in like a good shepherd and deliver you from the clutch of the devil.